This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hey, good morning, everybody. Boy, I'm so excited to spend some time with you this morning. Congratulations. Welcome back from your honeymoon to my friends over there. Good to see you guys. See, I, I tell you, you think I can't see you, but I totally can. Just warning you, you never know. Uh, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I just want to say welcome. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life, and it's my privilege to guide us for the next 30 minutes or so as we continue to engage with God. And whether it's your first time here or your hundredth time here, I want you to know that this place is for you, that we have some core beliefs around here. One of them is that you may or may not believe this yet, but we believe that there is a God and that God is He's not some distant rule maker who stays in the corner and is waiting to drop the hammer on you when you mess up, that God describes himself more as a personal, loving, all-powerful, totally present heavenly father who wants to guide you through life, who's here right now. And so whether it's your first time or you've been coming for years, I just want you to get comfortable, to make yourself at home and to open yourself up because we believe that God actually wants to meet with you today that God's excited to be here. You're not a nuisance to him. You're not a distraction to him. That God actually wants to speak to you and to, to guide you this morning. So go ahead and get ready. If you, if you want some coffee or tea, grab it in the lobby, bring it in. Uh, a few things that you want to grab are inside your program. One is this Start Here card. This is just a connection card. It helps you stay connected to our pastoral team, helps us stay connected to you. We want to give you full access to our pastoral community, and we want to serve you in any way we can. And this card is just a way that you can connect with us. If you have questions, thoughts, you want us to pray for you, uh, go ahead and get that filled out. And we'll be using these a little bit later on this morning. So you're going to want to have your name on it and your email address on it if you're a guest with us today. The other thing you're going to want are our teaching notes. Uh, They've got the Bible verses we're looking at. They've got some fill in the blanks. They've got some uh, conversation starts to continue this dialogue that we're going to start today as you head home and go throughout this week. Uh, and one of the things I want, to, I want to tell you about before I move too far into the message this morning is something that I'm so excited about. When you came into the lobby, you might have seen we have three friends here from India right now. And while we have guests from all over the world all the time, India might be one of the furthest places that people have traveled to be with us at church on a Sunday. And they are the directors and leaders of the mission that we support over in India. And they're here with us for a few days. Tonight, we're actually going to have this big global outreach night where we're going to talk about the work that you're supporting through the church that God is doing both locally and globally. So people from Redwood Gospel Mission are going to be here. They're going to be sharing their stories. People from the local college campus ministry are going to be here that we support. They're going to share some stories. Our friends from India are going to support or share their stories. Our friends from Mexico are sharing stories. It's going to be a can't miss night. And I just want, I would love to have you come back. It's at 630. We have childcare. And nights like this just open up our understanding of what God's doing, not just in our church and not just in Sonoma County, but around the world. And so I want to invite you back tonight because that's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Well, if you're just jumping into the story with us today, we're in this series that we're calling The Good Life. And The Good Life is completely from the longest sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' well, most well-known, most famous sermon. If you were raised in church, you probably heard chunks of it, bits and pieces of it growing up. And the whole idea behind this sermon is that Jesus says that you and I live in two worlds, that we live in the world that we can experience with our five senses. But then he says, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's this second unseen world that we live in that he calls the kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus says that this unseen world is marked by two defining characteristics. One is that in the kingdom of heaven, your identity is that you are God's child, that you're God's son or you're God's daughter, and that God loves you with a parent's love. And he, he has plans and dreams and hopes for you as his child. And then the second reality that Jesus talks about is that in this kingdom, God himself is the king. And that means that this kingdom is ultimately not shakable. So Jesus makes these big claims like, like the rains of life can come pouring down and beating down on you and the winds can blow against your life. You can experience tragedy, heartache. You can experience uh, some of the, the unknowns of life. And Jesus says, ultimately, you do not have to be destroyed when those moments of destruction happen. And here's why. Because God, who is both your heavenly father and the king, will ultimately restore all things, will make things right, either in this world or in eternity. And so Jesus says that we can live in this world with total assurance about who we are and total assurance of the fact that God will ultimately restore both our lives and our relationships and all things, either in this world or in the world to come. And from that foundation, Jesus starts to rewrite some of our stories about the way that life works because he knows something to be true. He knows that just telling us what to do in life won't ultimately change our lives. And God's not ultimately into behavior modification. You might have thought that church was all about a list of rules. Do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. But God is not a God that wants to just change your behaviors because he knows that changing behaviors will change our actions for a while, but won't ultimately change our lives. God knows that the way to change your life is to rewrite your stories or your narratives about how life works. And if we can rewrite our stories, it will change our actions. For example, if your narrative about your spouse is that she is bossy and negative and out to ruin your life and always nitpicking you. It will change your actions towards your wife, won't it? Because our narratives affect our actions. Now, if your story about your wife is that she is gorgeous, beautiful, a gift from God, that she's out for your good, that she is trying to better your life, if that's your story about her, it will change your actions, That's the way that life works. And so Jesus goes through the whole Sermon on the Mount and he doesn't try to modify our behaviors. Instead, he goes one level deeper and says that in the world that we experience in our five senses, there are these underlying stories that affect our actions. But in the kingdom of heaven, there are different stories or different narratives. And these different narratives lead us to different actions. And so he starts dismantling them one by one and taking the narratives of the world versus the narratives in the kingdom of heaven and saying, if you want to experience the good life, and that's a life that's marked by things like like joy and purpose. That's a life where you can be authentic and be comfortable in your own skin. It's a life where you know why you're here and, and what you want to do. If you want that kind of life, he says it's found by, by taking these narratives from the world and in, in stopping those and engaging a whole new set of stories or narratives about how life works, which will affect our actions in every area of life. And as we jump into one of those big narratives today that I would say is actually, in these next two weeks, I'm going to talk about two of the narratives of this world that probably consume more of our thought energy and our emotional energy than any other two topics in our lives. And they're huge, and I don't want you to miss either one. But before we jump into that, I want to ask you to think. Think about your first job. And I'm not talking about the one that you did for your parents where they paid you whether you did it or not. I mean like a real job. Think back to your first job. 
And when you get it, I just want you to stare at me blankly. Perfect. Okay. You got it. My first job, I was about 13 or 14, and I was a soccer referee, which was the perfect job for me. I love soccer, I love people, and I love being in charge. And being a soccer referee meant that I got to be around soccer, be around people, and I had a whistle. That means I got, as a 14-year-old, think about this. As a 14-year-old, I had power over adults, and I could stop the whole game with the blow of a whistle. It was very exciting for me. And I remember getting my first paycheck, and it couldn't have been more than about $60, but it was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. I went from getting $5 a week allowance to getting a paycheck at one time of like $60 or $65. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. But about a week later, I had this thought. If I could just get a little bit more money, it'd be even more amazing. Now fast forward about eight years to my first job post-college. I was a substitute teacher. Again, perfect job for me. I love people And I really like being in charge. And I got to be in front of a whole classroom of students. And I like to goof around. And the teachers would give us this, like, syllabus for the day. And I I blew through that in, like, half the time, right? And so I would, like, I'd play games with the students. I'd do stupid human tricks. I'd take basketballs and soccer balls, and I'd juggle them in the classroom. One time I, I threw a basketball, and it went right into a computer monitor. I didn't get invited back to that school. But I remember getting my first paycheck as a substitute teacher, And it was for like $900 in one month. Can you believe that? (laughs) Two months into that job, I was a thousandaire for the first time in my life. (laughs) It was amazing. And yet a few months into that job, I had this thought, boy, if I could make just a little bit more, then I will have arrived. Have you ever noticed that you and I now, we make some of us tens of thousands of dollars, some of us hundreds of thousands of dollars more than we made in our first job. Have you noticed that? And we had this question in our first job, if I could just get a little more, then then I'd be there. Have you ever noticed that that question does not stop when we get a little bit more? We just keep thinking, if I could get a little bit, a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, then I will have arrived. What is it that causes us to have that feeling? Have you ever zoomed out and asked, why do I always feel like a little bit more will make me feel satisfied? Well, Jesus says the reason why you and I have that feeling is that there's this narrative or this story in our culture that we can experience with our five senses. And the narrative goes something like this. Money and things will bring us lasting happiness. And advertisers spend billions of dollars every year to reinforce that narrative in our lives. By the time you're 60, did you know that you will watch an average of about 2 million commercials? That translates to watching nothing but commercials eight hours a day for six straight years. Some of you are thinking right now, I'm going to cancel cable and go to Netflix. Six years of commercials by the time you're 60. And all of those commercials have the same underlying uh, story. Here's what the story is. If you can just have this thing that I'm offering, then you'll experience lasting happiness. If you can just buy it or acquire it or work out hard enough to get it, then you'll be happy. And the converse of that is, without this thing, you'll never be happy. 
So if you don't buy it, if you don't have it, if you don't eat this diet, if you don't work out hard enough, if you don't make enough money, you're going to end up lonely and depressed and overweight and feeling bad for yourself. But if you can just get it, then you'll be content. Then you'll be happy. Then you'll have enough. Here's the problem with it. It's always just outside of our reach. So the question we're going to ask today is, so how much is enough? How much is enough? And if history is any indicator, the answer is you never have enough. In fact, John D. Rockefeller, who at the height of his empire was one of, if not the wealthiest man in the world, was talking to a reporter one day, and he he said to this reporter, he said, I'm just not truly happy or satisfied. The richest man in the world I'm not truly happy and I'm not truly satisfied. Now, the reporter was shocked. And he looked at Rockefeller and he said, well, how much money do you need to be satisfied? And Rockefeller said these famous words, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If I could just get... Now, listen, None of us currently are at the place of being the wealthiest person in the world. And I honestly, I hope for you and for our church that someday one of you is the wealthiest person in the world. That would be great for all of us. But even if you had the most money and the vastest empire in the world, if it's any, if history is any indicator, you'll still be trying to answer this question. How much is enough? Why? Why do we have that feeling? Well, the answer is because the narrative about money, that if you just have enough of it, you'll be happy, is partially true. Here's some truths about money that we just need to know. Money does bring us limited security. It absolutely does. Money provides shelter, health care. Money provides transportation, provides for our retirement. It provides limited security. But You and I know this to be true. Money can't protect your kids when they're crossing the street or when they go off to college, can it? Money can't protect your heart from being broken. Money can't protect you from getting cancer. Money brings limited security, but money promises ultimate security if we could just get enough of it. And so like Rockefeller, most of us find ourselves chasing after it. Another truth about money is that money provides situational happiness. I told some of you last week that Maria and I are celebrating our 10-year anniversary coming up in September, and we decided to go early to Jamaica for a week-long Jamaican vacation to celebrate 10 years of marriage, and we went a few weeks ago. And if you tell me that money cannot bring you at least situational happiness, I'm going to tell you you've never been to Jamaica because money absolutely brought us happiness. It was so, so fun. We loved it. We loved it. But the truth is, when we got back, it wasn't more than about four or five days before each of us looked at each other and we said these famous words that you and I say every time we get back from a great vacation. What do we say? I want to go back. When can we go back? Why? Because money absolutely can bring us happiness, but it's situational. We loved Jamaica, but in order to sustain that, we would have to stay in Jamaica at an all-inclusive resort for the rest of our lives. And remember what we talked about last week and Justin referenced it? That if we find our identity in the things we do, that means when we do good things, we feel good, but when we do bad things, we feel bad. Do you remember this? And Jesus doesn't want that, so he says your identity 
is as my son, and that's never changing, or my daughter, and that's never changing, so you don't have to do this. Well, the same is true about money. If money really does bring situational happiness, then when you're in Jamaica, you feel great, but you get home, and you just want to go back. And Jesus did not design you and I to live this kind of a life. He says, don't do that. He designed us to live up here. And so we're going to talk today about what Jesus says when he rewrites our narratives about happiness and money. But before we jump into it, I want to say a few things that some of us might be thinking right now. And they go something like this. I can't believe I brought my friend to a talk about money. Or something like this. When money topics come up, we start to think, God wants to take from me. But Jesus says, I don't want to take anything from you. In fact, I want to give a good life to you. When we start to think about money, especially in the church, and let's just be honest with each other, we think something like, the church is always after my money. The church is just after my money. Last week, you loved me when I talked about identity. This week, I'm the villain when I talk about money. Why? Because money has one of those strong narratives in our lives. And I just want to acknowledge it. And here's why this is so important. We're going to jump into Jesus's words today. He wrote these words 2,000 years ago to us. So I didn't write it. I'm just going to read it, okay? I I don't make the news. I just report it. But Jesus says there's a whole different narrative around money that could change your life if you actually believed it to be true. And he, he talks about money by using three metaphors and walking us down two different paths. And here's how he starts it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy them, where thieves can break in and steal. Instead, and I want you to, to underline this next part, instead, store up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and vermin don't destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Here's why. Because where your treasure is, your heart is also. I want to talk about about two major misconceptions when it comes to money and Christians. And there are two narratives that are both wrong. The first is this, that money is bad. That having nice things is bad. That having a nice car is bad. That going on vacation is bad. Listen, if going on vacation is wrong, I don't want to be right. The other narrative goes something like this, that money is a sign of God's blessing, and if I have it, I must be blessed, and if I can buy a Mercedes, I must be blessed, and why don't you have God's favor like I do? If you've ever watched a TV evangelist, this is some of what they say, as they have their, like, their, like, flavor, flavor, their gold necklaces, right? Neither of those extremes is true. The truth about money is money is somewhere in the middle. Money is neutral, and it's necessary. Money is not good or bad. It's neutral, and it's necessary for life. But Jesus says, let's call money what it is. Money is temporary. You can't take it with you. It's here for a short amount of time. He who dies with the most toys still dies. That's the way that it works. I was talking to my buddy Joe yesterday, and he didn't know I was preaching on this topic, but he said something to me. And just a warning, if you ever say something to me, you never know when it's going to come up in a sermon. So my buddy Joe says to me, you know what the Egyptians proved? And I said, what? He said, the Egyptians proved you can't take it with you. Because if you go to Egyptian tombs, you'll find their people's remains, and you have all this gold and and jewels and these ornate things, and the people are gone, and their stuff is here. What was he saying? Money, it's temporary. It's neutral, and it's necessary, but it won't last forever. So Jesus says, instead of storing up your treasure on temporary things, what if you 
What if you invested your treasure in eternal things? And what are eternal things? Well, over and over again, God tells us that people are eternal. So he says, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust and vermin can destroy. Instead, store up for yourself treasure in heaven on eternal things like people. You and I are eternal. Did you know that? You're not just here for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years and then gone into the ground. You have an eternal part of you, your soul, that will live forever. And Jesus says the best investment you and I can make, the one that will last into eternity, is investing in people. I said it this way in our notes. People are eternal beings. And when you and I invest our resources in people, oftentimes that's through the church or through organizations that are serving and loving people, we are actually investing in eternity. We're storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. That's why God in the Old and New Testament says to tithe. He says, give back the first 10% of your resources because when you give back the first 10%, usually to the church or to the causes closest to God's heart, when you give back that first 10%, you're actually storing up for who? For yourself, treasures in heaven because you're investing in eternal things. But I did some research and I found out a sad reality. Did you know that in the United States, only about 5% of Christians actually tithe, give back that first 10%? That means 95% of us are missing out on the joy of storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven. The average Christian gives about 2.5% back to God. And I wondered to myself, well, what would happen if every Christian gave? So I was doing some research and some digging, and I came across an article from Relevant Magazine that said that if every Christian in the United States gave... That would free up 165 billion, with a B, billion dollars for churches to use and redistribute. Think about that. Let me put it in context. For about 25 billion dollars, we could relieve global hunger, starvation, and preventable diseases over the course of five years for 25 billion. For 12 billion dollars, we could eliminate illiteracy in five years. For a mere 12 billion. For $15 billion, we could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. And Christians alone, if we tithed, would free up $165 billion a year for the church to use and redistribute around the world. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what that would do for people? What that would do to relieve pain and disease and suffering? If Christians did it. That's why Jesus says, store up treasure in eternal things. But I love what he says here. He says that, it, that I want you to give because it's primarily for your good. It's not primarily for the person you give to. Did you notice what he said? He said, store up for yourself eternal treasures. Not for others. Others might get the benefit of it, but when we do it, it actually changes our heart. And that's what Jesus goes to next. He says, practice generosity, and here's why. Because the way we invest our money will shape our lives. Verse 22, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body's full of light. By the way, that's a, like a Hebrew expression that would have been well-known in Jesus' day. The eye being the lamp of the body. He says, if your whole eye is healthy, what he means is if you are a generous person, if you give generously. That's why he's using it in this passage. 
If your eyes are healthy or if you're a generous person, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy or if you're a kind of a stingy, close-fisted person, your whole body will eventually become full of darkness. And then the light within you is darkness. And he says, how great will that darkness become? What Jesus is saying is simply this. The way we choose to view money and people will shape the people we become. If we're close-fisted with money, if we hold tight to it, if we keep it for ourselves, then ultimately, we're going to start to become suspicious people. Do they really deserve my money? Does that person really need the money? What are they going to do with the money? I know no one here has ever thought this, but um, like I've heard these crazy stories like, like the church is always after my, and you know what people don't say? They don't say the church is always after my heart, right? <laughs> the church is always after my, they want, they want me to have freedom. No, the church is always after my money. My money. I'm your best friend when I'm talking about the freedom, but we talk about the money. The church is, here's the deal. They're actually the same thing. God says, I want you to be generous because generosity will shape the person you're becoming. And if you want freedom in life, don't live close-handed because you and I know this to be true. No one wants to be around a stingy, tight-fisted person. Ultimately, people will pull away from you if you're suspicious, judgmental, close-fisted. And you'll end up alone and sad. And you might have all the money in the world, but if you're alone and sad, Jesus says the darkness within you has become so dark. But on the other hand, he says if your eye is healthy, if you're a generous person, an open-handed person, then people will be drawn to you. Because don't we love being around generous people? We just do. People who are open-handed, who are generous with, with their resources, with their time, with their energy, with their minds. We love being around them. And Jesus says, if you're open-handed, if your eye is generous, the light within you will just grow brighter and brighter and brighter, and you'll get to the end of your life surrounded by people who love you and care about you because we all want to be around generous people. And here's what I know about you because this is one of the things I love about new life. We love people. We love people because we believe God loves people. And Jesus says, here's how you can show your love for people by investing your resources in eternal things. Here's how he ends, and this is where he, he really lays it out. He says, be generous because whatever path you go down will shape the person you become. And in the end, you'll either love God or love money. Check this out, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. You might want to, but he says you can't. You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You might want to serve both God and money, but he says it's ultimately impossible. Why? Because money is the chief competitor with God for your heart and for mine. Because money and God offer the exact same things. Money offers security. God offers security. But money says, if you can just get enough of me, then you'll be secure. God says, you are already secure because of our relationship. Have you ever noticed that money has kind of an eternal quality to it? It'll be here after you're gone. The problem is, it'll be somebody else's. So money's almost eternal. God is eternal. They fight for the same place in our life. Money promises us purpose, 
and joy and security. God promises us purpose and joy and security. Do you see how they're fighting for the same space in our heart? That's why Jesus can say where your money goes, your heart will be there as well. Jesus said that 2,000 years ago, and then 2,000 years later, neurologists did this really interesting study. They gathered a group of Christians together, and they, they hooked their brains up to a bunch of electrodes so they could see what was happening inside their brains. And they said to these Christians, I want you to think about the time you felt closest to God. Maybe it was a worship service. Maybe it was, was out at a camp. Um, maybe it was on a mission trip. Think about the time you felt closest to God. And they watched their brains. And as they thought about the times they felt closest to God, this area in their brain started to light up. It was really interesting. And then they unhooked them. They grabbed another group of people. And they showed them pictures of really cool things like fast cars and beaches in Jamaica and gadgets, iPhones and iPads and all things Apple. And wouldn't you know it? The exact same part of their brain lit up. Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. They fight for the same space in your life. Money says, I can light up that part of your brain. I can light up that part of your life. The trick is you have to have enough of me. And according to Rockefeller, you'll never have enough of me to keep that part of your brain lit up. Jesus says, you're my daughter. You're my son. I can light up that part of your life and you don't have to do anything to earn it. I've already done everything to give it to you. And now I'm just inviting you to live with me in the kingdom. And don't let money take control of your life. Because if you're always trying to light up that part of your brain with money, ultimately you'll become a slave chasing after money. And it will become your master. And Jesus says you will be devoted to it and you will despise me. And he says, it's a trap. Walk with me. Choose generosity. Allow your life to be transformed. And here's why I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that you and I do not need to be slaves to money. A couple reasons. One, because we know that God is good and that God is out for our good. God does not want to take something from you. He just doesn't. God has everything he needs. He's not sitting around thinking, boy, if I could just take something from you, then I'd be complete. He's got everything and he's good. He's a good, good father. And ultimately, God's out for your good. He's not trying to rob or destroy. He's not saying, hey, would you come to church and have a relationship with me because I want to rob you of your Sunday. Not only that, if you get really invested, I want to make you serve in ministry and rob you of your time serving. Not only that, if you get really invested, I'm going to take your money too. That's not what God says. He says, the more you engage in community, the more I want to give to you relationships and purpose and life and freedom. He's good. And he's out for our good in every area of our lives, including our resources. And the next reason that I know we do not have to be slaves to money is because God has unlimited resources that he wants to flow through each of us to each other as we live in the kingdom. I've heard preachers on TV say things like this. If you give $100, God will give you $1,000. If you give $1,000, God will give you $10,000. You can't outgive God. That's what they say. The truth is, this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. If you give generously, I'm not, I'm not going to promise God's going to give you $1,000 for your hundred. I'm just not going to do it. 
because that's not the way God operates. Here's how God operates. God has unlimited resources in the community of Jesus' followers. And God loves to redistribute those resources as people need them. And I've seen over and over again, when people who practice generosity fall on hard times, you know what I see? I see other Christians wrapping around them and providing for them. Over and over again, I see this. I've seen it in my life and others. I remember when I was early in college, I think it was sophomore year, I had this, this cool old Bronco. And without getting into too many details, apparently someone didn't like me. And I know it because one night they took a boulder and they threw it through the window of my Bronco. Then they took a, a road flare, wrapped it in a towel, put some gasoline on it, and threw it in my Bronco and, and torched it. I know what you're thinking. And yes, the counselor, we had a ton of stuff to talk about that next week. I mean, we really did. I got a bunch of issues, but we're working through them. But I found myself in college seven hours away from my family without a car and no money to buy a new one because my car was not worth a darn thing. And you know what happened? This guy who was another Christian guy, and we were kind of friends, he came to me one day with a set of keys. He said, hey, I made an extra set of keys. I want you to have them. My car's in the parking lot. This is what it looks like. Anytime you need it, you go ahead and take it. I said, well, should I call you first to make sure you're not using it? He said, nope. If I go out to the parking lot and it's not there, I'll figure something else out. And for the rest of that semester, he just gave me his car whenever I wanted it. Why? Because God has unlimited resources and he redistributes as need happens. Well, out of college, when I became a thousandaire for the first time, I got this great idea. I thought, I really, I'm a motorcycle guy. I know it. So I bought two motorcycles thinking this is going to be great. And then I realized I'm a horrible driver and I'm terrified of motorcycles. Not a good combination. And I thought, back, I thought back to my friend who gave me his car, because I thought I could sell these motorcycles and make some money. But I thought back to my friend, and then I found two people. I didn't actually, I didn't know one of them. I met them through a friend. I knew another one who didn't have a vehicle. And instead of selling my motorcycles, I just, I gave them away. Because in the kingdom of heaven, God loves to redistribute resources. He's got unlimited resources and he redistributes as needed. I, I was talking to a friend after first service, and she said, I used to, I always tithed. I always gave 10% and then tried to give, you know, 5 or 10% beyond that as I could. And then as I finished up school, I felt sick, and I had to uh, recover. I lost my job, and, and my income went down to nothing, and I actually lost all my savings. And there were multiple points over the next number of months where I almost lost my house. I didn't have a job, so I couldn't provide for myself. And just in the nick of time, a Christian would come in and say, I was praying for you. Here's $1,500. I was praying for you. Here's $4,000. I was praying for you. Here's $5,000. Because God has unlimited resources, and he redistributes to his generous children as they need. And that's why we don't have to be slaves to money anymore. In the kingdom of this world, when all we can experience is our five senses, we better make as much as we can and hold on to it because if something happens, we gotta have it. In the kingdom of heaven, it's a whole different way of living where we can be generous because we know God's good and he's watching out for us and he'll redistribute as need be. And so it just frees us to be generous. Imagine, just imagine, I'm not going to talk to all Christians around the world, but imagine for those of us who are new lifers, who are followers of Jesus, imagine if we just took God up on this and began tithing, giving our first 10%. Imagine the work he would do 
through things like the Redwood Gospel Mission and COTS and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Sonoma State. Imagine the things he'd do with our partnerships in the orphanage and, and the house building projects in Mexico, with the orphanage and the school and the churches and the Bible college in India. Imagine the things he could do through us around the world if we practiced generosity. We would have a fully funded church that wasn't running a deficit all the time. We'd be fully funded and we could meet the needs of others in incredible ways. Could you imagine? And in the process of it, God would be transforming our hearts because where our money is, our hearts will be also. And he would be revealing to us over and over again, I'm good, I got your back, and I'll take care of you in your time of need. Just imagine. That's where Jesus is never trying to take from us. He's always trying to give back to us because he knows the best way to live. He knows it. And he invites us into it because that's the good life. That's the free life, and that's the life where purpose and mission come together. Now, I hope you're asking, if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower, I hope you're asking this question, how do I get in on that? Like, that sounds amazing. And it's simple. Here's how you get in on the, on, on the kingdom of heaven. Here's how you engage in this relationship with God. We're told that actually God did all the work beforehand, that you and I had been separated from God because of our sin, those destructive patterns that are hurting us. It's the things you do that hurt other people. It's the things other people do that hurt you. It's those patterns that you can't break free from. That's sin. And that sin has some sort of control over us until God takes control of our lives. Jesus knew that, and so he left heaven and came to earth, and he gave his life on a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He died and was buried, and when he rose from the dead three days later, he broke the power of sin forever so that we could actually experience freedom. And when he did that, he invited as many people as want to to stop living on our own with the narratives of this world and start living with him as his children in the kingdom. And the way you do that is you just pray and say, God, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to experience your forgiveness. I want to experience life with you in this kingdom of heaven. And in just a minute, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. So if you're here and you've never entered into a relationship with God, while I'm talking to the rest of us, would you, just, would you just say the simple prayer? It could be the first prayer you've ever prayed. Just say the simple prayer. God, if you're real, would you show me that it's time to enter into a relationship with you? Just pray that right now as we're sitting here, and I'm trusting that God's going to respond to you. And as you're doing that, I want to talk to the rest of us. For the rest of us, I, I want us to, to grab those Start Here cards, and on the back, I'm giving us a couple ways to take some next steps. The middle one is this. It says, I'd like to take this class called Financial Peace University. Many of us here, if we follow the patterns of this world, we would like to be generous, but we are trapped in debt. Our finances are ruling over us. And as much as we think this is a great idea, we just cannot figure out any way to find freedom financially from debt because we're just stuck. Well, we're going to offer a class this summer called Financial Peace University, and it's a, it's a class that's designed to help us understand God's principles of finances, to help us break free from debt, to get on a budget, to live like nobody else lives, so that ultimately we can live the generous life that God has for us. And it's a great class. If you've never taken Financial Peace University, I want to encourage you to mark on your card that you'd like to take it. We can give you information about it. We'll tell you when the class starts. Uh, our, some of our pastors and leaders are going to be leading that. I'm telling you, this summer, this could be the thing for you that brings freedom in your life. Especially, by the way, I just want to talk because I have a heart for you guys. It, especially if you're young and you're just about to get married or you're just starting out, 
Because boy, those of us who have been in debt before would say, don't wait till you're in debt to start this journey. Start now and live in freedom. So if you're like a newlywed or, or about to get married, did you know that the number one fight uh, for married couples is around money? Don't, don't set yourself up to get stuck around that. Set yourself up for success. Take Financial Peace University. And then the last one is this. It says, I'm going to start asking some questions before I make purchases. Did you know that 90% of our consumer buying is subconscious? It's not based on what we need. It's based on what we think buying that thing will say about us and the happiness we think it'll bring. But we don't ever ask the question, do I really need this? Why am I buying this? So I just want to bring that from our subconscious up a little bit and have you start asking some questions when we make purchases. Questions like, do I really need that thing that I'm about to buy? Why am I going to buy it? Will it bring me some kingdom joy rather than temporary happiness? Now, there's some of us in this room who would ask these questions from kind of a legalistic background and say, well, then I can never buy anything. That's not what we're talking about. And in fact, in life groups this week, we're going to talk about how to ask those questions without feeling like God is a killjoy taking everything from us. But I think those are some great questions to start asking. Why am I buying this? Do I need it? Is this the best place to invest my resources today? And just see what God says to you. All right, I hope I've given the other ones of you who have been praying and asking God if he's real to reveal himself. I hope I've given you some time to do that, and I hope you're ready to respond to him. If you are, you can pray the simple prayer with me. Let's close our eyes. If you're ready to respond to God, to enter into a personal relationship with him, to experience his forgiveness, to walk through life with him, you can pray the simple prayer. Whisper it where you're sitting, or you can say it in your mind, and God hears you, he will respond. Just say, say Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me, that you have a plan for my life, that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? God, would you forgive me of the times I've hurt others? Would you begin the process of healing me in the places where others have hurt me? God, would you Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And would you show me what it looks like to walk with you in the kingdom of heaven every day from this day forward. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.